Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Psychology Sisters podcast. Before jumping into today's episode, we would like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Arabakul, Waramai, and Darul peoples on which the Psychology Sisters podcast is recorded today. We acknowledge both their history and their living present, as well as future generations. We invite you to take a moment to pay your respects to the traditional owners of the land in which you are joining us on today. This episode is sponsored by our brand new six-week anxiety e-course, a self-paced course dedicated to deepening your understanding of the hows and why of your anxiety, as well as teaching you the strategies that really work. If you'd like to feel more calm, confident, and empowered with your anxiety, head to the links in the show notes for more information. Welcome back to another episode from the Psychology Sisters. We are two passionate professionals on a mission to deepen your understanding around mental health and start the conversations to break down stigma. Hosted by Kat, a registered psychologist, and Amy, a registered psychotherapist, from building our own online private practice, the Site Collaborative, to creating an e-course to help you care for your anxiety, we are so dedicated to bringing good quality, evidence-based information to you in easily digestible and accessible ways. Together we dive deep into the wonderfully complex world of psychology. Good morning, lovely listeners. Thank you for joining us on this chilly old morning. Kat has brought a very interesting topic for us to unpack today. But before we dive into all things good girl syndrome, we did have some feedback from quite a lot of listeners recently saying that our check-ins are quite lengthy and we totally agree. We apologize for who we are. This podcast is often how Kat and I catch up and although we speak every day, it's usually business related. So, I really enjoy our little check-ins and we can both talk underwater. So, we'll do our best to keep this short and sweet, busy in the biz, glow getter, marathon powerhouse, Katniss. How are you? What is your pit and peak? Oh, thank you for that beautiful intro. Powerhouse seems like a bit of a stretch when I feel like a bit of a slob um, this week, but thank you for <laughs> telling me I'm Oh, it's a bit harsh. <laughs> Do not feel like powerhouse. <laughs> no, I just think it's winter. I think winter just makes you feel very like blah. Mm. Put on my trackies. Don't want to leave the house. You know. I think everyone kind of hibernates a little mm. bit. But my pit and peak of the week, I would say that my pit would be, you know what? Just busy time of year. I know that's such a basic recommendation for a pit. It's a very kind of just busy time of year. I think busy in the biz. We've got a lot going on behind the scenes, a lot going on in my personal life. So just, you know, a little bit hectic. I think I'm torn between slob, sloth life and doing a lot externally. So that would be my pit. And I'm really trying to practice a bit of self-care. My peak would be that you and I and our beautiful, lovely friends on the weekend went to a beautiful trip to the Hunter Valley and it was so just special to spend time together. I feel like at this age in our late late 20s, early 30s, it really is quite rare to spend really good quality time together with your nearest and dearest. So had such a lovely time, so grateful to have such beautiful friends around us. So that'd be my little peak, which was so much fun. 
What about you, my darling girl? Hello. Trying to think of synonyms for powerhouse. Ames, how are you? What's your pit and peak of the week? Oh, thank you. And look, slobhouse definitely fits. That isn't inaccurate. I have to echo the peak, echo, echo. It was so lovely to spend time with beautiful friends. I really, really cherish those weekends away together. We get to just spend time hanging out. I agree. As we move through different life stages, it's just really precious. I think my pit is that I ruined my favorite jumper, which is a real, I guess, mild inconvenience. You know, it's a first world hit. However, I have been avoiding washing this jumper because I was scared of ruining it. And I took every precaution possible. I put it on a delicate cycle. I made sure I didn't put any bleach in and it's like a woolen knitted jumper. And (laughs) I put it in by itself. And when I took it out of the washing machine, it came out like cardboard and it had shrunk. (laughs) So, I don't know what I did there, but uh, say la vie, but (laughs) it'd be like that sometimes. How much did it shrink by? Like, what are we talking? Oh, Are we talking like it went down a size? Like, could it be child size now? Where are we at with how much it shrunk? I'd say it went from being oversized to cropped. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Well, come summertime, you'll be a styly gal. I shall be a styly gal in summer. My peak is going to be apart from our beautiful friend getaway is that I am currently obsessed with roast vegetables and hummus. I know I'm sticking with the simple pleasures, but I am at the moment loving chopping up a whole bunch of like root vegetables like carrots, beetroot, Brussels sprouts. Yep, I said it. I went there. Brussels sprouts are delicious when they're roasted and drizzling olive oil, chucking in some garlic, throwing it all in a bowl, having some hummus. Oh, I actually get excited for lunchtime. So that's going to be my peak. If it's been a while since you've made yourself some good old roast veggies with garlic, (laughs) olive oil and hummus, chef's kiss. That sounds delicious. You're such a foodie. I am. I really admire how much you really put in to food and like cooking and I really wish I had that skill set. It sounds delicious. Whenever I go to Amy's house, I just sit at the kitchen bench and I'm like, all right, what are you cooking me? What's on the agenda this week? (laughs) But yeah, you have delicious food. So it sounds incredible. Absolutely. Now, I thought I would hand over introducing today's episode to you, my beautiful darling Katniss, because this was your idea. So, why are we talking about good girl syndrome today? Good girl syndrome is such a hot topic at the moment. I've seen it really trending on TikTok, also known as nice girl syndrome. I think the two go hand in hand. I think they're kind of the same definition. Good girl syndrome is something I have also seen crop up when it comes to clinical work, this idea of being, I guess, the hashtag good girl, the nice girl, the quiet girl. And although this is not diagnostic by any means. It is more just a really kind of interesting way to describe a set of internalized behaviors that women and girls do tend to express a lot more than men or boys. So, I thought it'd just be so topical to talk about. I know I put a post up a couple of months ago on the PC about it and it, it, it seemed to, you know, kind of really relate to a lot of people and resonate with a lot of people. So, I thought it'd be so interesting to talk about today. Before we jump in though, I'm really curious, Ames, did you know before you heard this term, Google syndrome, what it was? Like, were you across this? So, I wouldn't say that I was completely across it as good girl syndrome, but as you were 
referring to a set of internalized behaviors. You know, I can really relate this back to perfectionism and people pleasing. And I've often looked at this need to be nice as a bit of a coping mechanism. And I'm sure we'll get into this. I've often kind of looked at it as self-suppression. So to me, I can really conceptualize good girl syndrome with this idea that there are parts of ourselves that we learn to suppress or repress, emotions that we learn to repress, and then we learn just to be nice or to be good girls because of those parts of us that we've had to repress. So absolutely. But I think that this good girl syndrome is just such a sensical way to conceptualize a really complex pattern or a really complex entrenched um, internalization, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really interesting and really great way to put it. And I think really, if we were to kind of define this, it can be an extension of people pleasing. Like I think when I was doing, you know, our research for this, I was thinking that there is such overlap with people pleasing and the good girl syndrome. It's just it adds in that gendered element that women and girls and those who identify as women and or girls, yeah, tend to be socialized more so and reinforced more so for these behaviors, right? So young girls learn that in order to be liked, which is the most important thing, they learn that they need to be quiet, agreeable, high achieving, respectful, and polite. So these behaviors are reinforced for boys and men. We're definitely not saying that. They are more socialized and reinforced for girls and women, particularly from the ages of zero to five years old, which is where that socialization starts to begin. And from childhood, girls are socialized to please others, often at the cost of their own needs. So if you're kind of a bit confused about what that actually looks like, what it might look like growing up is, you know, there's really, really common statements of don't be too loud use your manners, be respectful, go and give X a hug, even if you don't really want to, you know, be polite, say please and thank you. And of course, men and boys do get that a lot too, but girls typically are more vulnerable and are reinforced more to take into account other person's needs and wants than their own. So they learn that, well, parents and caregivers put emphasis on belonging and acceptance for a huge degree, especially in westernized cultures. So what happens then is girls learn that in order for me to be liked and accepted by others, which is the most important thing I'm learning from my mum and dad and my caregivers, I need to internalize my needs, my emotions, what makes me comfortable versus uncomfortable. Essentially, they learn that harmony and submission is more important than self-expression. And that can really play out in adulthood, right? So women in adulthood, what that might look like if you are really polite, agreeable, don't like conflict, really driven to succeed and exhibit those really, really, really overt people-pleasing behaviours, may have experienced reinforcement as a child that their worth is determined by how much others like them. Likeability is the most important thing because likeability means I'm accepted by the group. And that really, when it comes down to it, becomes a form of survival, right? So in adulthood, women might fear setting boundaries. They lack conflict management skills or assertive communication. They find it difficult to prioritize themselves and often put others' needs before their own. So typically that's what good girl syndrome can look like in a bit of a nutshell. Ames, what is your experience? What's your kind of lens of the good girl syndrome? I think that is such a thorough explanation of what good girl syndrome is. And I think absolutely there are layers and layers of entrenched messaging, which causes so much fear and anxiety around being 
yourself. I think good girl syndrome is about being good to everyone but yourself. It is this sense of absolutely, I have to be quiet. I have to be warm. I have to sit still. Don't take up too much space. Look pretty. I think in my clinical practice, what I really notice is that the good girl narrative makes women and girls feel guilty for being human. It is about absolutely that getting approval from other people that follows us from childhood. You know, it starts off as needing approval from our parents through our schooling years, social interactions, and that how good I am is reliant or dependent on validation that others like and accept and approve us. So to be a good girl, what does that mean? It means you're enjoyable. It means you're meeting expectations. It means you're approved of, you're likable. And I think absolutely it creates a lot of tension and discomfort when your value is dependent upon being liked by other people. I also think sometimes this can be almost like a reaffirmed cycle as well or reaffirmed pattern because for example you may feel like okay to be good and to be liked I have to put everything and everyone above myself and then what can happen is you know we may stretch ourselves too thin because we fear saying no and we're not able to set boundaries because that does feel like a threat and then it might mean that Say, for example, you forget things because you've stretched yourself too thin or you run late to events and people are frustrated at that, which you then make sense of as no matter what I do, it's never enough because I'm letting someone down or I'm disappointing someone or I'm making a mistake or I'm doing something wrong, which then kind of reinforces that anxiety that I I need to be good, I need to be better. I think another way that that can be reaffirmed is that we unintentionally and unconsciously teach people how to treat us and what to expect from us. So if you're someone that is always good and always going above and beyond for people in your life, this becomes an expectation. And then if you start to integrate, say, boundaries or you start to try and prioritize yourself, people can then respond with frustration because it's not what they were expecting. And then this can affirm that people will be angry at you or not like you if you're not prioritizing other people. And I think those traits of politeness and selflessness and quietness are praised under the umbrella of good girl in society and on a micro level. I see this coming up for adults who are children of emotional neglect. And this doesn't have to be necessarily on extreme ends of abuse. It can be smaller repeated events like being told to stop crying. Or if you are sick, like go to your room, you know, you aren't allowed to make a big deal out of things that feel big for you. Also, if you have had strict or punitive parents or controlling parents that haven't allowed space for vulnerability, you learn to be good. You know, you can't make mistakes. You need to be obedient. You need to follow the rules. As a child, if you didn't get the love that you needed, you learn to be nice. You learn to be a nice, helping individual. You learn to repress your own needs in order to be liked and loved and accepted and to serve others that you need to be compliant to those rules. And it's that fear of saying no. I also believe, and I think this is really interesting because I experienced this a little bit in my own childhood, this doesn't necessarily develop from extreme abuse or neglect, although it can, or even punitive or strict parents. For example, my dad is the most loving, kind, gentle man who is really supportive and I had a really happy childhood with him. However, he doesn't have the capacity to tolerate when I'm not okay. 
So I felt like I had this pressure to be good and to be okay and to be successful and always doing well because I didn't want to overwhelm him. So good girl syndrome can also come from this pressure of always being good in a sense of always being okay, always being capable because maybe your parents can only tolerate you being good, only tolerate you being okay, which actually creates deception. This almost like I feel like I'm lying or like I can't be honest with you if I'm not okay or if I need help or need support. It can make us feel like I'm going to put a burden on someone or I need to lie about my needs or my feelings to have this perception of always being okay, always being good, you know, never getting into trouble or avoid upsetting or disappointing parents or or people that are close to you. It's like you have to keep up this mask of being good to keep everyone okay. And I think that can show up with children that have immigrant parents. You know, they've sacrificed so much for me to give me a good life. Like I can't let them down. So there's that pressure to be good and to be perfect. And what you were saying, Kat, that I agree with so much is it actually comes back to survival. This like attachment dynamic where it's almost like this sense of attachment versus authenticity. Okay, to keep my attachment safe I need to be good, which means it almost feels like a threat to be my true authentic self. And I think when a child is confronted with that conflict of expressing my true needs or my true feelings will threaten how my parents like me or accept me or how valued or worthy I am, it means that I actually disconnect from my feelings and needs and then I compulsively serve others as an adaptation to make up for the needs that weren't met to keep that attachment safe. And I think it becomes almost like this irresolvable tension and niceness or being good becomes a coping mechanism, you know, from that lack of attunement, unmet needs. If I'm nice and I'm helpful, then I won't be alone and people will like me. Spot on. It's like if you have to make that decision, right, what's more important, my connection, my place in a group, my ability to be loved versus my emotional expression, who I am, speaking up, being authentic. Of course, (laughs) our brain is hardwired to choose the former, the survival, because connection and acceptance is our way of surviving. So like I think from an attachment lens, but also just a kind of really biological lens that that feels more important, right? Like that's our survival mechanism at the expense of ourself. Right. Like, and and I think if we're socialized to believe that in order to be loved, I need to repress parts of me, of course, of course, that's what we look for. I think that's so interesting what you mentioned about your dad because you're right. It's not just kind of this high level trauma or neglect or abuse. It can absolutely stem from that not having room, not feeling safe to express yourself because it was like, well, what's more important? My harmony, my relationship, my connection with someone or me speaking up and will there be space for me that can create this sense of don't want (laughs) to upset or burden anyone else. So I'll kind of maintain this mask of everything's fine, I'm all good and really not being true to self. So it's such a survival technique. And I think when I have like people in my clinical practice who do present with those typical people-pleasing or good girl syndrome, 
I think when you explain it like that, you know, it, it makes so much sense because this is not a choice, <laughs> you know, like to, to be like this, it can feel frustrating. And we'll talk about that cycle of resentment that can come up later with good girl syndrome. It can feel so frustrating because I think in adulthood, there's this awareness. I know that I'm doing this and I know that I get frustrated at myself or other people, but I know it's on me. So why can't I stop this? Why can't I just say no? Why can't I set that boundary with that person? Why do I keep repressing parts of me? And it's actually so hard to not, right? Like it's been years of learned behavior through socialization reinforcement that this is the right, correct thing to do, that this will guarantee a sense of acceptance and survival. Starting to heal from that is so tricky. And I think when you can break it down like that, it makes so much sense why people do really struggle with good girl syndrome or people pleasing. It's not a wake up in the morning and choose this. <laughs> it's the messaging we've received that has made this cycle really hard. And yet, right, Ames, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, becomes really reaffirming because when you start to kind of go against that and maybe start to recondition yourself in other ways in terms of being more assertive, of speaking up, of setting boundaries, whatever that might look like, people won't like that. (laughs) People find that really hard to accept in you. And then that kind of just reaffirms, well, then if I'm not being accepted, then I better just stay (laughs) the good girl because that's how I stay. That's how I maintain connections. Absolutely. guys, sorry to interrupt this episode. We just want to quickly let you know all about our brand new anxiety e-course called Coming Home, How to Care for Your Anxiety. In this six-week self-paced course, we will help you to deepen your understanding of your anxiety and teach you practical ways to help you feel more calm, confident, and connected. If you've ever felt unsure about how to look after your anxiety and want to learn helpful and practical skills that actually work, then this course will be for you. From our years of clinical work and research, we found those who understood their anxiety and learnt to care for it rather than saw it as an enemy to get rid of, noticed a reduction in their anxiety and felt more empowered to manage their stress and anxiety in everyday life. We are so passionate and dedicated to assisting you build a strong foundation to look after your experiences of anxiety. If you'd like more information, pop over to our website on www.atthesitecollaborative.com.au. There's a free download of the introduction and what to expect where you can feel free to suss out the course. We will add all this information in our show notes. Now back to the episode. I feel like the good girl syndrome or nice girl syndrome is this stuckness around it feels like being my authentic self or my true self comes at a cost because I have been so conditioned or it has been so entrenched in me that I need to prioritize others and be good and be nice and repress myself in order to belong and connect with people because we are wired for attachment. We are biologically programmed to salvage our bonds and our connections to survive. It feels like Being myself comes at a cost. It feels like expressing my authentic self, that there will be a consequence for that. I do also want to mention, obviously, nature and nurture will always play into any set of behaviours. I would say with the good girl conditioning aims, and I'm wondering if you agree with this, it does tend to be much more nurture than nature. However, studies have found that there is a small degree of, you know, temperament involved here. So those genetic predispositions to certain personality traits. And one of those personality traits, if we're looking at the big five theory, is that agreeableness. If you score quite highly on agreeableness as a personality trait, as a temperament, you may be more vulnerable to developing that 
set of behaviours like that aligns with perfectionism, people-pleasing and the good girl syndrome. I have found, though, it is mostly with the clinical work and the research that we have done tends to be more socialised, tends to be more reinforced through those really early childhood years around gender norms, gender expectations. That plays a really big role in why this might show up. So firstly, it's that connection that we were just speaking about how important it is to feel connected and it is survival, but also that kind of bringing in that gender nuance here of that women and girls are more likely to experience this through the socialization. How do you feel about that nature versus nurture when it comes to good girl syndrome? I do agree. And I think one of the genetic predispositions that I see in my clinical work playing a significant role in people-pleasing, perfectionism, good girl, nice girl syndrome is sensitivity. If you are higher on the sensitivity scale, you are more prone to something called guilt inducement. And I think underlying a lot of you know, what we're talking about around perfectionism, people-pleasing is this guilt proneness. And I think that plays a huge role in terms of nature, biology. And absolutely, I think what happens is our environment is really, really powerful in terms of how that set of potentials, our genetic potentials, are are kind of either nurtured or, or how we adapt to our environment or how we're looked after plays a huge role then in, in terms of how those genetic potentials are, are activated. Do you feel like we've spoken about the maybe gender differences between good girl syndrome and we're not saying that this does not happen for boys and men? Absolutely, it sure does. It's just that women and girls and those who identify as women and or girls tend to experience this more. So, Ames, tell me, do you feel like this does show up? for girls and can you tell us a little bit more about the gender nuances here? That's such a great question because I agree with what you've mentioned before. We're not saying that this only impacts girls, women, those who identify as female. However, I think it is still really important to acknowledge that I do think that there is a difference in terms of what society and culture expects and allows for girls. For example, I feel like the process of integrating anger is different for girls and there is generally a huge societal and cultural overlay with that in terms of girls' expression of anger that can create a lot of biases when it comes to self-expression. And I feel like that contributes to that difficulty with being honest about myself or being my authentic self. In fact, there are parts of me that I can't express because it's not good, quote unquote, or it's not nice. I think a lot of girls learn that anger is not allowed to be there because it's this ugly trait. Okay. And it's not, it's a normal human emotion. And that's what I was saying before, where I think good girl syndrome can actually make girls and women feel guilty for really human experiences. So, for example, that idea that if a girl or a woman has a really big emotion, she's crazy, you know, she's out of control, she's hysterical. So, it's like we're fearful of expressing ourselves in those big ways because of what society makes that mean. And So, girls instead learn to be nice and good girls that are put together and that aren't too much, quote unquote. So, what I think happens is women then learn to be quite passive and to conceal their anger and big emotions, which again, you know, self-sabotage, it comes out in other ways. I think there is a huge biases in success and leadership for women and men 
you know, men are allowed to be dominant, powerful, and that makes them really good at their jobs. Whereas women are expected to be nurturing and soft and warm and gentle, which doesn't exactly filter into praise for their professional capability, which I think is really interesting. And I'm generalizing here, but I think they're so important because they filter into this affirming, perpetuating narrative of what it means to be a good girl. I think Girls, again, gender differences defined in how they respond and care for others. Okay, like you were talking about before, Kat, it's this I need to prioritize other people and be quiet and minimize myself. So people pleasing becomes a way of getting needs met. And it's like, oh, I'm so scared to put myself first because that might say that I'm selfish. You know, it might say that I'm a selfish, mean girl. And I just don't see men having the same extent of difficulty with that as what girls do because of these societal messages. I think that men have been told by society and culture that there isn't as much restraint around anger and expression because of things like my mind goes straight to sporting fields, you know, like having a rumble, you know, deucing it out, if, if, if that is the way that you would describe it. Like that's all very acceptable. Whereas if a girl was to do that, it wouldn't have the same allowance. It wouldn't have the same acceptance. And again, I just want to preface that I am generalizing and this is not always true, but in the context of how good girl syndrome is perpetuated through society and culture, I think that bias and that difference definitely exists, which means that girls end up being angry at themselves and internalizing their experience of anger and being self-critical, judging themselves, you know, maybe even sets up competition with other girls, which we then perpetuate this, like, oh, she's not a good girl, she's not a nice girl, because there just isn't the same allowance and room to express themselves. Would you say that you notice the same, Kat? Really well said. There's this interesting idea, right, and I think we know this narrative of, Women do express emotions. We are more likely to express and share feelings and emotions, which brings us closer to others. And that is absolutely true. You know, when we look at kind of statistically for men versus women and those who identify as men v women, yes, we are much more emotionally expressive. However, the idea that women are expressive is true, but only for a few emotions, right? Women are more likely to express positive, nice, agreeable emotions. And I'm not saying that we don't. We absolutely share with our friends and our girlfriends things that are happening for us. I'm not saying that's true. Studies have found we are much more likely to share those really positive and internalized those other emotions which are seen to be threatening. You know, as Ames was talking about that anger, jealousy, resentment, sadness, like all of those things we are much more likely to actually internalize because we have been socialized to believe that those emotions threaten relationships, yeah, that those emotions will keep us out. People will not like us or accept us if we express those emotions. Positive emotions facilitate rather than threaten relationships and often promote closeness with others. So while we are definitely much more expressive and our language around emotions is usually, you know, like we do have a bigger vocabulary around, you know, how we're feeling and we're more likely to share it. However, we're more likely to share mostly the positive or the non-threatening emotions, right, which as Ains was mentioning, which just further perpetuates. So like we think about what keeps this cycle going of good girl syndrome is, yes, as children, as girls, we grow up learning these things. 
but we are the ones that perpetuate it, right? Because when we think about the internalized misogyny, internalized misogyny is really our judgment of ourselves that we are not allowed to be a certain way or behave in a certain way. And then we cast that judgment on another woman or girl or those who identify as women or girls who do something that is opposite to what we've been socialized to believe is right. And that's the perpetuation, right? Like when you, I think slut shaming is a really good example here. That is internalized misogyny, you know, in practice (laughs) that, for someone who is assertive or dominant, as you're talking about, Ames, especially in the workplace, someone who, you know, is sexually provocative, like some reason, you know, we, we find that that is not okay. That's going against this good girl narrative. And then we further cast judgment and that's what perpetuates this kind of really messed up gender norm of what it is to be a woman, to, to be a good woman, to be a good girl. And I think that that's the heartbreaking part is that, Yes, we've learned it, but I think we unconsciously perpetuate it within ourselves because as long as we're judging ourselves, we're judging other people. And I think that's why it's really important to be really aware of this, not just for ourselves, but how we kind of judge and and treat others, especially other women around us. What would you suggest are some helpful reminders, tips, recommendations for anyone that can really relate or if any of this is resonating with anyone, what would you suggest? Oh, it's such a big question. I think, firstly, if you do resonate with any of this, I really want to throw some compassion and validation your way. It is really common. Really, a lot of women and girls and those who identify as such really do experience this. And it is, unfortunately, a really common part of, you know, being us. So just some compassion for self here that this is all really adaptive you've learned this as a way to survive and fit in and please your parents or caregivers and that is so adaptive and so human to want to do that so I think really practicing some self-compassion understanding as to why this shows up for you as I said it's not a conscious choice that you're feeling like you need to make it is something that has been socialized and reinforced and that's okay I think when it comes to what you can do or some things that can help, I really always find that some self-reflection is so important here. I would ask a few questions. Where did I learn that being liked is important? Like where has that come from? Is being part of a group, is likability important to me? Do I find it hard to speak up? Do I find it hard to have a voice? Do I often feel resentful if I spread myself too thin? Because that can be a really common symptom of the good girl syndrome that I want to please everyone. And and I think this goes into people pleasing as well. I want to please everyone and do everything for everyone because I hate to say no or let people down and not be liked. But then I feel really resentful because I've got to do all these things. So good girl syndrome and people pleasers and perfectionists as well will be much more vulnerable to burnout because, you know, you spread yourself too thin. Other questions you might ask yourself is, how did I respond to conflict as a child? What was that like for me? How how did I feel around conflict as a child? What does conflict feel like for me now? Does it feel threatening? Does it feel unsafe? Do you feel comfortable with, with any kind of conflict? What would happen if I wasn't liked by someone? How have I responded to that? Or what would I feel would happen? What does being a good girl or people pleaser protect me from? What do I think it has protected me from? And what do I think it keeps protecting me from? And do these behaviours still serve me? So I think some really good reflection here as to where they've come from, creating understanding around them and also are they still serving me? Do they help me? In what way might they impact on me positively? And what are they protecting me from? In what way might they actually be hindering me and and causing like this disconnect with my authentic self? 
So I think reflection is always so important when it comes to looking into your internalized thoughts and feelings and behaviors because it is so complex. But I think reflection into those things can be a really good place to start if you do acknowledge or resonate with some of these things we've spoken about. What about you, Ames? What are some things that you might recommend to someone who's just resonating with these things? Oh, wow. Such beautiful reflections. I love all of that. And I also throw compassion and validation your way if you are someone that is currently feeling really stuck with that conflict or battling that tension of self versus other, really want to belong, really want to connect, but I feel like it's often at the expense of myself. And absolutely, I think understanding your attachment can be invaluable because it is survival, it is adaptive, it is unconscious, and it's part of those kind of automatic compulsive responses that we often have in interpersonal relationships. If your value is seen for who you are, then you have nothing to prove to anybody or to yourself. You know, you don't have to achieve anything or be anything other than yourself. So, if you were made to feel like you had to suppress parts of yourself or disconnect from parts of yourself in order to be valued, worthy, seen, important, special, then that is something that absolutely requires compassion to reconnect to. You know, it might be a reflection of what parts of myself have I had to conceal or suppress because I'm worried that they're not liked. I think that can kind of come into doing a little bit of shadow work and this can be helpful to explore with a therapist. So shadow work is around exploring unconscious thoughts and beliefs around self that that we may have from childhood or from past experiences. Oftentimes we don't respond to what's happening in the now, we respond to our perceptions of the past. So perceptions of rejection or perceptions of criticism or or fear around not being liked, I think that can be really, really helpful. If you are a compulsive helper or nice, good girl, because essentially it is that self-suppression, is it is that guilt around what I want or what I need or how I feel or who I am. And niceness is a coping mechanism for not being able to be authentic. It's like that sense of betraying ourselves when we're not truly who we are that can bring up a lot of internal suffering and stuckness and anxiety and tension and that internal sense of shame and think that's you know essentially from betraying our authenticity to keep our attachment safe in order to survive with other people i think what you were mentioning before cat around resentment is really interesting because i often describe resentment as a chronic anger, like when we have chronic anger that has had to be repressed, it manifests as resentment. And resentment can be this experience of longing and needing and feeling wronged and rejected. And it's insulated by a prison of shame that the reason I can't express my anger is it's a bad thing about me. So I think what can be really helpful here as well is allowing yourself to feel angry, allowing yourself to connect to anger as a normal human emotion and giving yourself space to process that. And I think that can be really hard if you have internalized that anger is a bad, wrong thing about you and having that makes you a mean, rude, unlikable person. That can be really, really tricky. So I think having that slow process of, okay, like, I'm angry. Can I accept that I have anger? How do I feel towards myself when I have anger? And can I invite some allowance and some compassion 
I think that can be really empowering and healing when it comes to those disconnected parts of authenticity. I think what can also be helpful is practicing self-validation and affirming how you feel and your authenticity. Again, if being yourself feels like it comes at a cost, like people are going to be mad at me, I'm going to lose friends, I'm going to be seen as selfish. Is there a double standard here? If I had a friend who was trying to integrate a boundary or needing something for themselves, would I think that they're a selfish, bad, mean, rude, unlikable person. And I think that can be helpful. Would I give them more allowance than what I'm giving myself? And then validating yourself through that process. I think it might be also practicing being proud of yourself. That can be really helpful too. What has allowed me to do the things that I'm doing and what feels good about being true to me and being proud of giving myself those things that I have been needing. Maybe reflecting on your own judgments and biases, as Kat was mentioning. What is this kind of reflecting about me? Treating other women, people in general, with empowerment and support. Like if someone is loud about how they feel or not feeling okay, absolutely. Like be loud about something that isn't okay with you. You know, celebrating self-expression, supporting other women and those that identify as such with compassion and with support. I think sometimes this may involve having hard conversations. What am I scared to be honest about? out of fear that someone won't like me or I'll rock the boat. Even things like saying no. What feels hard about that? What is hard to be honest about? And what is underlying that for me? What is that kind of deep-seated core belief or core fear that makes me feel really scared or really worried about that? Because ultimately, that's what creates disconnection, not being yourself. And that can be really, really tricky as Kat and I have acknowledged throughout this podcast, this is hard because it's automatic, it's unconscious, it's part of our adaptive survival mechanisms, it's not a choice. However, our brain is plastic, (laughs) our brain is malleable, we can create new neural pathways by practicing small things often and I think I love and appreciate so much your wisdom around this, Kat, in having that continual connection to self, that continual reflection around self is such a wonderful way to start that process of reconnecting to authenticity. Yeah, so well said. Thank you so much for your beautiful pearls of wisdom into this topic. I know it is something that is always such an ongoing discourse with the good girl and I think there's so many layers to this away from just what we've spoken about today. So we hope that you guys have gotten something out of it and if you guys like this episode please do let us know that was such an important one to share today and has personally given me so much to think about as I was researching this I don't know if you felt the same but I felt oh my goodness like I can really resonate with so much of this and, and really do want to you know start to make some changes and to you know, slowly and surely as we're talking about like small things often, you know, about starting to do things a little differently and to speak to myself and set those boundaries and do the things that have typically felt so unsafe and so uncomfortable. So a really good reminder for us too. So Ames, thank you so much for coming on as always and sharing so many wonderful things. I have a few resources that I'll leave in the show notes for anyone who's interested in some further reading. I just found a really cool study around the gendered discourse of Google syndrome, but you can also find us on, obviously, on our normal Instagram, Psych Collaborative and Psychology Sisters. But Ames, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all your beautiful wisdom today. <laughs> well, you're stuck with me, so... <laughs> 
will be here. <laughs> I hope everyone enjoyed this episode and we will be back in your ears in a couple of weeks. All right, everyone. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, just adding a disclosure, this episode is not intended to replace personalized psychological advice and it is always intended to be general in nature. This episode does not take into account your own individual experiences. We always recommend you seek personalized professional psychological support. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you want to support the show, it would mean the world to us if you could leave a review. This also helps us sneak our way into more ears. If you'd like to follow us or learn more, please follow us at The Psychology Sisters or at The Psych Collaborative on Instagram. If you'd like more info on our private practice, please visit www.thesitecollaborative.com. All of this info will be in our show notes. We will see you next time, guys. Bye.